Any opinions expressed are my own and do not reflect the opinions of anyone outside of Independent Left Media, LLC. Independent Left dot News. Independent Left News. Indie Left News. Independent Left News. Oh, yeah, and I get news from Independent Left. Thank you, Independent Left dot News. They actually put up posts of different shows, different things going on. Check out Indie Left. They're doing a lot of good things. They're on Twitter and Instagram, and they've helped promote our show a lot. Thanks for the work you do behind the scenes, too. This man does our Discord and some other help, so just love to shout him out. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. They kind of really do a great job of pushing. Thank you, Independent Left, for reminding me of that. Check out independentleft.news. Indie Left News. Indie Left, shout out. What's happening, everybody? It is Sunday night, and it's Indie, and it's Reef over here, and it is. How did we miss that? Oh my God, we're we're here for another week again, and it has been an exhausting, crazy, fun, and sometimes really upsetting week, um, but also inspiring week. So we're here to do some stories. Um, Reef is freaking out because his, his stream tech's not working yet, and we're going to see what we can do to get that going. Thank you so much for the raid, Radical Leftist oh, Agenda. Nikki, that. what's going on? Um, I can do my little spiel in the process. Um, I can even turn Reef off if he really gets mad and he wants to slam the computer keyboard or something, but I think that would be entertaining. I might want to do a single yeah. on Reef for that. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so welcome, everybody. How do we miss that? How do we miss that is a show airing on Rockfin, YouTube, Twitch, Rumble, Facebook, Twitter, and Odyssey, Te Telegram. Also, we're live. Oh, I have to hit the button on Telegram. That's right. No, we're live on Telegram. Sunday nights, 10 o'clock Eastern. That's now, 7 p.m. Pacific. Reviewing a few big stories that we haven't seen covered much in independent media channels this week. And it's co-hosted by Indy. That's me. I'm the founder and, le and editor of independentleft.news and leftist.today. That's a Substack. And then I got this guy, Reef Breland, and he's the creator of the Jimmy Dore Discord. And he's the host of Reefer After Dark, INN News, and of course the technical director over at, at Indie News Network. And we're both founding members of the Indie News Network, which is a collaborative family of 23 independent content creators. And all the stories that I'm going to cover tonight were featured in Independent Left News this week. Um, please share this link, like the stream, tell people about it, subscribe wherever you are on, on all the platforms. We're also on podcast. Um, so again, we're on like 10 different places. We're, we're even live, self-hosted on independentleft.news. So you don't even need to watch on a platform if you don't want to. A lot of our donors and, and contributors and big fans, uh, we really thank them in the, the scrolling ticker. But I did also want to shout out some of our volunteers and our staff members. Big Bag Crab did the thumbnail for tonight. It's killer. And uh, and he's our, our creative director over at INN. So, so thank you, Big Bag Crab. Greg. Phantomos Fanto doing our editing, doing all the clips, and he's a clipping machine. Really appreciate you for that. We got Fred Edward and Chris Gilman over on the Twitters and the Facebooks sharing like crazy. And tonight Dolores also was sharing, and really thank you. Thank you for that. So um want to get into some stories because I have five stories tonight. You guys are gonna kill me because there's a couple long ones, but they're again really important. Um, I think that we need to cover them. So that's why we're doing this. Um you're sharing your application, FYI. Am I really? Uh, see, rookie move mm -hmm. by Indy. Uh, we have to fix that and share my screen and change windows. See, we're doing it live. We're doing it live, folks. Uh, screen four. Here you go. Now you can see the, the slideshow. There it is. Oh, Kedok. Yep. And uh, just thank you to everybody in chat already. We got 20 people watching live here. Plus, we got Rockfin, Rumble. 
Odyssey. We're live on Odyssey. We're live in Telegram everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Tell everybody. Tell your friends. Okay. Let me hit the button and let's go to our slideshow. And you can see we got our nice little chat up in the corner. Uh, wanted to give a shout out, by the way, to a um, few people that, that have had some some friends and some family members had some, some trouble. So if you can hook them up at all with any kind of donations. Okay. We got Warren, link, link linktr.ee slash extra booyah. We've got Angel Rivera also, the handsome cynic. He's been going through some stuff, and his nephew was in the hospital for seizures lately. And then this weekend, uh, our, our, our friend Jesse, also his son, was uh, was there for some blood oxygen stuff. Again, I don't want to get too into it, but just if you can help them out, if you can support their work, you can share their stuff out, if you can get some people helping them out, that that would be really appreciated. And love you guys for that. Uh, again, let's get to the stories. So... This is from our friend over uh, overseas, Eva Bartlett. Um, the West is silent as Ukraine targets civilians in Donetsk using banned pedal mines. What? How is this possible? So mm -hmm. this was actually published. She publishes on, on RT, but she also put it on her own in Gaza and beyond. And she's showing here, these are what these pedal mines look like. And I'll show you a couple more. She's got a couple more pictures in here as well. And she writes an article about that. On Saturday, July 30th, just after 9 p.m., thunderous explosions rocked central Donetsk shortly after there were announcements that air defense had shot down uh, Ukrainian-fired missiles containing pedal mines. That, Given that over 300 of these explosives are packed into each of the Ukrainian-fired rockets, central Donetsk could literally become a minefield if they successfully landed. And social media telegram warnings urge residents to stay inside, wait for emergency services to clear the streets, which they began doing throughout the night. But come daylight, untold numbers of these tiny devices still remain. More warnings were issued to stay at home. Better to be late for work than lose a leg. Residents that absolutely have to go out are advised to keep their eyes down, watch where they step, avoid grassy areas, and walk extremely carefully. Okay, and here she's showing just some of the pictures of, of, of spots that were identified and uh, several groups of mines. While Ukraine has been using these mines on Donbass for many months, in recent days they've intensely bombarded neighborhoods with them. Initially targeted with, with the hard-hit uh, districts of Kievsky in the north, Kirovsky in the southwest, and Kubyshevsky in the, in the west. I'm butchering that probably, but I'm going to I'm going to go with it. But as of Saturday night, Ukraine hammered Central Donetsk with them, too. Happy birthday, Anthony, by the way. And now walking in the city Hi. center is, yeah, is, is a nightmare, one that Eva herself has personally had to endure, how widespread these mines are in central streets and walkways, near apartments, in parks. I know and, Lip talked about seeing them, too. Yep. Um, All right, and... So, and I think uh, George, George also, Eliasson also talked about that. Mm -hmm. All right. So, yep. as it turns out, the pedals were not only are not only widespread, but also uh, often very difficult to spot. Even if warning signs have been placed right next to them, their small shape, dull color blends in with surroundings, and if you aren't actively looking at the spot you're in, you could easily miss them. When walking, you could learn you learn to avoid any objects that could be covering a mine and tread only on bare streets or sidewalks, which is sad. <clears throat> the first yeah, bunch of mines that, that she saw were circled in chalk. 
warning sign placed in front of uh, to keep cars from driving over them. People stepping from uh, from stepping on them. All right, this was on a central to next street, a residential area with shops and a park nearby. Why weren't they cleared? The entire area was littered with the pedals. DPR sappers worked methodically, clearing area by area. But given that hundreds of the mines were dropped all over the city, this is painstaking work. Yeah, they need like explosives crews. So she, this was again on August 1st, uploaded these videos in two parts of what, what the soldiers are doing in clearing the area of the pedal mines. Near some apartment blocks, numerous mines have been found and warning signs to uh, had been put out. Danger, mines, and it said that by the tidy explosive circle with chalk or a tire or whatever was available to draw the eye to its presence. But on many occasions, looking at the area designated as containing a mine, it took me a good while to actually see it. Now, imagine if there were no signs at all, a bloodbath for civilians and animals too, since it doesn't take significant weight to set them off. So what is a pedal mine? Well, it's around the size of an average cigarette lighter. The pedals are tiny, but still very powerful. A clip shared on Telegram illustrates this. A DPR soldier chucks a tire at one of the mines and the tire is flung high in the air from the blast. It doesn't take a powerful imagination to estimate what would happen if a person stepped foot on one of them. The explosive are placed via remote delivery methods, meaning they can be spread by mortar, missile, or artillery dropped by helicopters and planes. That's literally how big they are. Yep. <clears throat> okay. According to DPR Emergency Services, Ukraine is using Hurricane MLRS-fired rockets to spread the mines. Each contains 12 cluster munitions. Each cluster has 26 mines inside. So each bomb has 312 mines. The cluster explodes in the air, disseminating them widely, scattering them in different directions. Their butterfly-like design enables them to glide and land without exploding, usually. Then they lie and wait for someone with bad luck to step on. Mm. Some of these anti-personnel mines have a self-destruct timer. Others, including the ones Ukraine is firing, have a years-long shelf life. They do pretty much no damage to military vehicles, and therefore their use in Donbass is insidious, deliberately targeting civilians to leave them maimed. On July 30th, in a densely inhabited working-class district of western Donetsk, in a field with garden plots for nearby apartment residents, Eva herself saw the same nefarious mines. Originally scattered, they had been collected and awaited destruction by DPR emergency services. In the large courtyard of an apartment complex, she watched from a safe distance as, as emergency services timer detonated eight mines they had found around the grounds. The day prior, they had destroyed 26. Another 150 were, were, were located and destroyed using a radio-controlled minesweeper. But there remains much to be done to restore the streets and courtyards to safety. So since the mines were scattered on Saturday evening in the DPR representative office at the JCCC, has created an interactive map showing the areas most contaminated by the mines, giving residents a general warning of which areas to avoid while walking or driving in. While some cars have been lucky enough to only have a tire blown out, where the mine to detonate near the gas tank, the entire vehicle could explode. Of course. Yeah. <clears throat> Multiple civ civilians have been killed by these mines since they were scattered over Donetsk, and even now, wounded civilians are still coming to the city's hospitals. According to Vadim Onoprienko, yeah, the deputy director of a trauma surgery center, 
10 amputations have been performed over the last week. Victims of Saturday's mines and ones that have been dropped earlier, one of whom was an 83-year-old man. Jesus. Now, who's doing this? Well, unfortunately, all evidence, according to Eva here, points to Ukraine. So pro-Ukrainian commentators are unsurprisingly blaming Russia. Journalists claiming to care about civilians are perpetuating Ukrainian propaganda, saying that Moscow's forces are scattering the mines over civilian areas, never mind the fact that these territories are controlled by Russia's allies. So why would they? Among them is the yeah. would-be war hero, the would-be war hero, Malcolm Nance, <laughs> uh, who temporarily abandoned his job as a notoriously anti-Russian MSNBC analyst to apparently actually fight the Russians in Ukraine. Oh, God. G.I. Bro, if I remember correctly, is as our brother Daryl at, at INN, Black in the Empire, called him. Okay. So, here's Butterfly Mines. These toy-colored mines are designed to maim you by popping off toes or a foot. This was another war crime. Right. He's lying. Oh, Malcolm just... Uh, yes, of course he is. Right. It's Ukraine um, dropping them. And orcs? Come on, Nance. At least pretend to be a decent human. Right. Orcs. Okay, this is the kind of projection that she's seen ad nauseum when reporting from Syria and dealing with Western propaganda there. Okay, Ukrainian nationalists openly admit that they do not see the Donbass people as human and encourage their murder. Ukraine has been killing and maiming citizens in the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic for, eight, for over eight years, including firing cluster munitions into the heart of cities, targeting hospitals, markets, schools, busy streets. Even all the scattering butterfly mines over Donetsk, it's hardly surprising. It's criminal, but not surprising. So one argument used by pro-Ukrainian commentators is that Kiev has been destroying these mines under the Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Convention, which it signed in 1999. However, out of the 6 million such mines they initially declared in its possession, only 2 million have reportedly been destroyed as of 2018. So... Uh... So here again is uh, th this Nina, a blue check. The EU and, and NATO were helping U Ukraine destroy its petal mine stockpiles as part of EU. Look how well that went with Donbass suffering these from these for eight years. And again, right there, they're talking about that, right? But then how, how are they getting there? Russia's not making these petal mines. They're not appearing no. from anywhere else. <laughs> so Ukraine has good reason to believe that it will not be held accountable for using them against civilians, given its Western backers and their allies' pension for using prohibited weapons on civilians without repercussions, including Agent Orange in Vietnam, depleted uranium in Iraq and Syria, yeah. and white phosphorus and dart bombs in Gaza. White phosphorus. Mm -hmm. Oh, the dart bombs are fucking anyway. Yep. Yep. And the fact that Western media turns a blind eye is also a boon to Kiev. Right? So this is one of the Telegram channels that Eva had shared from that post. And actually, I zoomed in. It blends in so much to the grass. Like, I had to so zoom well. in, and I couldn't even see it when I zoomed in. I was like, wait, I, I, I'm guessing that shadow is it? I mean, it's it's kind of, Now, yeah. it's, it's interesting, because on stream that I'm seeing it on... On uh, OBS, it actually does does look. You can kind of see it stand out in that circle right there. Um, yeah. 
And that's funny. That that black thing is actually a tree, but because I'm on against the green screen, it looks black. <clears throat> that's funny. Yeah. So again, I just wanted to showcase Eva's work. Please uh, support Eva Bartlett. And I, I thought I had a graphic about Eva. Uh, she's She is an incredible writer. She's written for RT. At Eva K. Bartlett, E-V-A-K Bartlett is her is her handle. Uh, I'll get some stuff together. And it's, it's going to be all in the descriptions afterwards for sure. Um, welcome, everybody, to the chat. That was our first story talking about Ukraine pedal mines. And again, I, I want to shout out uh, independent journalist Eva Bartlett, who is on Ukraine kill list. She is reporting from the Donbass right now. Uh, Ukraine is targeting her and uh, we are, you know, hoping that she stays safe. Appreciate the work that she does and the effort and the commitment that she's got to bringing the story and telling the truth from on the ground and countering what the NATO narrative is because Otherwise, who's going to do that? Who's going to give you the truth from on the ground and and in country that that's English speaking that we know has reported on these things in in the framing that that see that's anti corporate that's that's looking at it from a an anti corruption perspective and that's that's got the receipts and that's done the work and she's got the chops and the history. Um, so again, oh nice, we got we got a decent number of people watching. It's great, good to see everybody. Thank you, thank you so much. All right, so we got our next story. Woo! Okay, I guess this is probably what everybody's coming here for. Um, um, I'm a big fan of Whitney Webb. Um, Whitney Webb's got a book coming out next month, uh, all about Les Wexner, and um, and 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 his grooming of of Jeffrey Epstein and others, and his role in the global trafficking network and everything else. So um, this week, Whitney actually published an article on Unlimited Hangout, um, which is is long. It's an excerpt from the book, and I wanted to go through it. Uh, I, I want to go through half of it tonight because it is long. It's going to take me probably about 10 to 15 minutes just to get through that half, and then we'll cover the other half next week. I thought that would be good as an intro, and uh, maybe one of these days... The lovely, wonderful, incredible Whitney Webb would grace us with with her presence, interview, and a conversation somewhere in INN Indie Left Friends of. How did we miss that? Something somewhere that would be like beyond amazing. You know, we 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 love and adore and admire her work, and please go support um, Unlimited Hangout. Go support Whitney's work. She is an independent journalist, and we're going to talk a little bit about who she is and her background and connections. Yes, she did get on Slow News Day. Yes, uh, we. Yes, that's her favorite show to go on. So I'm not going to try to compete with with Scuba Steve and Slow News Day. But if she ever wanted to come on and grace us and and give us that that honor, I'd love it. And she's great. So anyway, so this excerpt from her upcoming book, Whitney is going to examine the Les Wexner Foundation origins and and the ties of Leslie Wexner's philanthropy and Jeffrey Epstein's to Harvard as well as the now infamous Young Global, Leaders, Young Global Leaders Program at the World Economic Forum. And all the Harvard Young Global Leader stuff happens in the second half. What we're going to cover tonight is all the setup to understand the background behind how they get to Harvard and the Young Leaders Program. I call Winnie the encyclopedia. She is the dot connector. 
she knows who went to school with this guy and who's in this one's circle and who's on this one's board and who funded this and who dated that and then she's involved in the traffic again so she's involved in knowing this so again the following is an excerpt an adapted excerpt from whitney's upcoming book one nation under blackmail which examines the network behind jeffrey epstein and traces it back to the merging of american organized crime and intel beginning in the early 1940s in this excerpt whitney examines the wexner foundation's origins and the ties of wexner again to you saw what that was that was the same thing and you can order the book it can be pre-ordered crab mm -hmm. already did bunch of us already have <clears throat> so again so this is the origins it's hard to know exactly when the when the wexner foundation was originally created the official website for the foundation states clearly in one section that the foundation was first set up in 1983 alongside the wexner heritage foundation however the 2001 obituary obituary of his mother bella states that she and her son created the foundation together in 1973 Regardless of the exact year, Wexner's mother, Bella, became the secretary of the foundation, just as she had with his company, The Limited, which Wexner wanted people to refer to as joint philanthropy. Now, before we get to any of all of this, and it's funny, Les Wexner, The Limited, also, I believe, Victoria's Secret. Um, so, you know, the, the story of The Social Network, the movie The Social Network, Justin Timberlake tells a story about a guy who buys... Victoria's Secret, the brand from a guy who who ends up jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And the guy who bought Victoria's Secret was Les Wexner from the limited brands that turned it into a multi-billion dollar business and, you know, whatever. Uh, right. Pretty interesting stuff. Fascinating. All right, so. Full documentary on that now, right? I'm sure there like is. That. Yes. Foundation's website states that the original purpose of the Wexner Foundation was to assist, quote, emerging professional Jewish leaders in North America and mid-career public officials in Israel. Jeez, I could have been involved with that, theoretically. I'm not. <laughs> per the website, Wexner's main philanthropic endeavors were created after Wexner reached the conclusion that what the Jewish people needed most at that moment was stronger leadership. At that As a result, Wexner sought uh, to focus his foundation's attention chiefly on the development of leaders. And as a consequence of this, Wexner's programs have molded the minds and opinions of prominent North American as well as Israeli Jewish leaders who went on to work at the top, top levels of finance, government, and even intel. One of the Wexner Foundation's original advisors, and perhaps one of the most important, was Robert Hiller, who had previously been an executive vice president of the Council of Jewish Federations and Welfare Funds. Robert I. Hiller was described in the article The Baltimore Sun as a nonprofit leader who helped develop community fundraising strategies and was active in the Soviet Jewry movement. Now, again, I'm in I'm almost 50. Um I remember when I was about 10, 12, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, there was a big effort uh in the Jewish community to acknowledge and to dedicate ceremonies to the Jews in the Soviet Union who were not allowed to practice because of communism. There was a big, um, a big movement about that and talking about how communism mm. there had alienated Judaism as a religion. Mm. So as well as, as being sure. known as a community development leader, Hiller was also an executive with the community chest of metropolitan Detroit in 1948. In that position, Hiller helped bring together corporations such as GM to create social service groups under an umbrella organization, which is a precursor to collective fundraising efforts today. It's bundlers. 
1950, he became the associate director of the Jewish Community Federation of Cleveland. And six years later, he also joined the UJF of, of, of Pittsburgh. He'd spent another nine years in that position before his move to Baltimore. Again, why, why is all of this relevant? Well, here's why. Because in his autobiography, he wrote about his extensive dealings with various Israeli heads of states, saying, I had pictures with every Israeli prime minister from David Ben-Gurion to Menachem uh, Began. I would have had many more with Began, but because he was the current prime minister, my favorite picture, however, it was to be hung, was taken in D.C. at a gala party where Marianne and I were with the ambassador Yitzhak Rabin and his wife Leah. Okay, Hitler was Thanks extremely... Israeli name. Well, you know. Yeah. It helps. It helps. You have uh, the affliction for it. It helps. It helps to be a member at some point, you know, at least an extended right. member. Uh, Hitler was extremely proactive when it came to seating suitable high-ranking candidates for appropriate positions in Jewish community organizations, a task that the Wexner Foundation would later reproduce on a grand scale via its various fellowship programs and subsequently apply the world to the world's businesses and government. One example of this matchmaking was the appointment of Larry Moses as assistant, uh, as assistant to Rabbi Maurice Corson. Now, he's this Maurice Corson, you're going to learn about him. Corson is credited with having okay. as having co-founding the Wexner Foundation with Les, Leslie Wexner in 1983 per the foundation's website, and he served as its first president. After he left that post, Moses stepped in to serve as the foundation's president. So his assistant then steps in and and becomes his successor. All right, this is this is the this is Corson and Wexner and. Uh, in an undated photo, but this is clearly in the 80s. Hiller wrote in his autobiography that he had personally enticed Moses to become Rabbi Corson's assistant, and this later resulted in Larry Moses becoming the executive vice president of the Wexner Foundation. When Hiller was just 33 years old, he was presented with an opportunity to become a member of the Big 16, which was classed as an informal grouping of the 16 largest communities in North America headed by prominent Jewish executive members. One of, the, one of the people who Hiller connected with the Wexner Foundation was originally meant to, to lead the Big 16 Foundation, Fern Kettleman. Kettleman declined this prestigious leadership role in order to join Larry Moses, where he became assistant at the Wexner Foundation. It's all very incestuous, I have to say. <laughs> Hiller, when revisiting... Like the Thrones. Yeah, kind of. Hiller, when revisiting his life, would state one of the most stimulating relationships I had with the Wexner Foundation of Columbus, Ohio, and New York City. Rabbi Maurice Corson was the foundation president. My relationship with him started in Baltimore, where he had been a new rabbi for one of the city's largest conservative synagogues. He came from Philadelphia with an interesting background of, and credentials. And that's, again, coming from Hiller's... So it's linking all these guys together in all these cities... Okay, Hiller goes on to write that he, however, seemed bored and uneasy with the routine of being a synagogue rabbi. When he and the congregation decided to part company, I assisted in getting him an executive position with the United Israel Appeal of Canada. He did so well that he was recruited to return to the USA in an executive position with International B'nai B'rith. Uh, Wexner, Leslie Wexner met him through his work with B'nai B'rith, and when Les began to put together a formal foundation, he engaged Rabbi Corson as the chief executive. Right. B'nai B'rith, okay, according to Whitney here, is a Jewish fraternal organization that was founded in the 19th century and is modeled as a secret society, leading some to compare the group to the Freemasons. I, I don't know how secret they are. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I know that I saw stuff around my house when I was a kid, like letters and stuff that had 
that that name on there, but I have no idea what it was linked to or tied to or anything. All right. Mm. Hiller went on to assist course on uh, in the initial stages of setting up the Wexner Foundation when they put together a distinguished advisory group with the group meeting in Columbus, Ohio and New York City. Hiller describes assisting course on in creating the foundation, which Hiller called, quote, an unusual foundation with its own agenda and programming. So after several years of service to the Wexner Foundation, Hiller retired from his consultancy role and was, re was replaced by Philip Bernstein, who's the former executive of the Council for, for Jewish Federations and Welfare Funds, the CJF. Again, one that we had talked about before. This is all people yeah. coming, successors from these organizations are continuing and following in the work. Now it makes sense to examine Rabbi Mori's Korsan himself. Here we go. Korsan was a prominent Jewish educator who, as previously mentioned, already had associations with various Jewish welfare organizations prior to serving as co-founder and then president of the Wexner Foundation. Korsan had been ordained as a rabbi in 1960 through the Jewish Theological Ceremony uh, Seminary after previously studying at the University of Cincinnati, where he graduated in 1955. By 1964, he'd become president of the Religious Education Society in Seattle, and, and he remained in that position for another two years until 1966. Over the following decade, he began working for the Zionist Organization America in Atlantic City. Shortly thereafter, became senior rabbi at the Chizuk Amuna Congregation. I don't even know where that is, a position he held from 76 to 79. So he keeps bouncing around. At this time, around this time, he helped course on uh, Hiller helped him get an executive position with United Israel Appeal of Canada, where he went on to work for only a year, again, before joining B'nai B'rith. So he's bouncing from organization to organization. He's one of their rising stars. He keeps getting brought up the chain. Once recruited yeah. into serving a leadership role within the influential secret society, again, I don't know how secret they are, but Corson worked as director of development for B'nai B'rith International based in New York City between 1980 until 1985. So he now parks for five years. He'd been bouncing all over the place. All right. During this very period, the board of overseers of B'nai B'rith included Edmund Safra, who's a notorious banker with close ties to Robert Maxwell and later Jeffrey Epstein. Those are pretty big names. Edgar Bronfman, he's scion of the family behind the Seagrams, uh, whose fortunes have long been tied to organized crime. And Max Fisher, who's a Detroit businessman who launched the Jewish Agency, a, worked as a private diplomat on Israel matters, and later served as a mentor to Leslie Wexner. I believe, and I think it's going to talk about Max Fisher in a minute, I think he was involved also with that uh, Charlie Wilson's war stuff in the 1980s. Yeah. As noted previously, while Corson was at B'nai B'rith, he first met Leslie Wexner, who persuaded him to co-found the Wexner Foundation, per the version of events on the Foundation's website. Again, all this background is going to matter when you read the book. So you know who the players are and how they got to where they got to and how Wexner acquired the kind of power to be able to build a network and influence that he did, but do it behind the shadows. Although he'd been recruited by Wexner and sub subsequently left the B'nai B'rith organization, Corson became a member of the executive committee of B'nai B'rith Hillel Commission in Washington in 1987. Again, bringing him back. You know, he just when I thought I was out, they bring me back in. You know, uh, another you key son of a bitch. Another key figure who's important to mention is the co-founder of the Wexner Heritage Foundation, Rabbi Herbert Friedman. Depending on which part of the Wexner Foundation site you visit. That foundation is listed as having been founded in either, again, 1983 or 1985. 
However, Friedman's clearly listed as the co-founder of the foundation and has having served as its president for a decade. Okay. The Wexner Heritage Foundation, per its website, was created, quote, to strengthen volunteer leaders in the North American Jewish community. Similar to prior other organizations, it spawned the Wexner Heritage Program, which provides young North American Jewish volunteer leaders with a two-year intensive Jewish learning program, deepening their understanding of Jewish history, values, and texts, enriching their leadership skills. This all sounds actually decent. It's education and historical, except that mm, we all know otherwise. Friedman was a U.S. Army yeah. chaplain during World War II and also served as, quote, an advisor to Jewish affairs during General Lucius D. Clay, uh, the commander of American occupation forces in Germany. He was later personally recruited by David Ben-Gurion, who went on to serve as Israel's first prime minister, to join the, para the paramilitary group, the Haganah. The Haganah was the precursor to the Israeli military and was armed in large part by organized crime-linked networks. Uh, per the New York Times, as a member of the Haganah, Rabbi Friedman participated in Aliyah Bet, the illegal transport of European Jews to Palestine. From 1954 to mm -hmm. 1971, Friedman was the chief executive of the United Jewish Appeal, and in that and in that role raised more than $3 billion to support the fledgling state of Israel. During this period, UJA was intimately involved in relaunching the uh, the relaunching of the Jewish Agency by Wexner's mentor Max Fisher in 1970, as we said. Fisher was also intimately involved with the related United Israel Appeal. Throughout the 1980s, Wexner was one of the largest individual contributors to the United Jewish Appeal in America. And after creating the Wexner Heritage Foundation with Friedman, he became UJA's vice chairman. Again, incestuous. All odds sitting on each other's boards and influencing each other's organizations. Mm -hmm. While Wexner was serving in these capacities, he was also engaged in closed-door meetings with the highest levels of Israeli leadership, not just about quote-unquote philanthropy, but also about his business interests. One specific meeting saw him meet with top Israeli government officials about Chinese and Israeli interests, working with his company, The Limited, to establish factories in the occupied Golan Heights. Notably, the Wexner Foundation has direct controversial ties to at least one former Israeli head of state, Ehud Barak, who was intimately involved with Jeffrey Epstein and an alleged participant in his sex trafficking operation. As reported by Israel Today in 2019, quote, Barack's ties to the Wexner Foundation became an issue only after right-wing journalist Errol Segal called last October to investigate the $2.3 million research grant Barack received from the Wexner Foundation, which, in, which has in turn for years been the beneficiary of Epstein's financial contributions. According to Siegel, or Segal, the grant under question was given to Barack in 2004 to 2006 when he held no public position. Barack insists he had no authority to disclose details about this grant. Only the Wexner Foundation can if they so choose. And they, of course, choose silence. So we talk again about developing leaders. Um, set up simultaneously alongside the Wexner Foundation, Wexner's Heritage Program, the WHP, plan to connect American Jews with the ever-expanding nation-state of Israel. Um, the program was created so as to expand, quote, again, it's very flowery language, expand the vision of Jewish volunteer leaders, deepen their Jewish knowledge and confidence, and inspire them to exercise transformative leadership in the Jewish community. Again, remember, all these guys are post-Holocaust, post-World War II, 
uh, children of Holocaust survivors and grandchildren of Holocaust they have been traumatized by their by their families okay and propagandized as well to a point we all have been in in this community Foundation defines program as, quote, a, an essentially a Jewish learning and leadership development program for volunteer leaders uh, in, in North America, right? There have mm -hmm. been to date around 2,000, quote-unquote, leaders who have taken part in this program. The WHP is a vehicle for standardizing a certain perspective on the history of Israel, as well as Judaic texts. The two-year program is made up of 36 evening seminars, which occur bi-monthly for four-hour periods, as well as three short-term and out-of-town summer institutes hosted in either the U.S. or Israel. Each of these summer institutes are between five and seven days long and take place throughout the program. So these guys make a serious commitment to this. Yeah. As with other well-founded leadership programs, such as the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Program, the Wexner Heritage Program yeah. targets a very specific age group aiming at professionals who are generally between the ages of 30 and 45 years old. Some of the, the most important criteria required of program participants include a showing of demonstrated commitment to Judaism, the Jewish community, and or Israel, and a track record of leadership in Jewish communal life. So the Wexner Foundation website claims that the 2300 alumni of the Wexner Heritage Program are top, top lay leaders at the local, national, and international level. In the 35 cities where we've convened WHP cohorts, virtually every Jewish communal organization contributes to be, uh, continues to be supported by our alumni. They become presidents or chairs of synagogues, federations, JCCs, Hillels, day schools, camps, and more. They're often founders or chairs of allocations or annual campaigns. They serve on the boards of JFNA, 70 Faces Media, the Foundation for the Jewish Camp, International Hillel, APAC, and J Street. We know them very well. The Shalom Hartman Institute, mm -hmm. Pardes, Hardor, and every U.S. rabbinical seminary, the Jewish Education Project, Prisma, the JDC, and so many more. Like, every everything at the top. Basically, if you're going to get involved at any kind of high level, these guys are going to have their, their, their claws into you at some point. Mm. Okay, it's worth noting that and I don't want to use the word clause because that's again got all kinds of all kinds of references. Again, I am a member of the Jewish community. I am not demonizing these people, but what they're doing is definitely not on the up and up. It's worth noting that of these aforementioned groups, the Wexner Foundation and especially the Wexner Heritage Program enjoys a particularly close ties to APAC. For instance, Elliot Brandt, APAC's national managing director, is an alumnus of the Wexner Heritage Program. And in a 2018 speech at that year's APAC policy conference, Brandt noted that most of the APAC national board consists of Wexner Heritage alumni, not to mention its regional chairs and some of its most committed donors as well. The word infiltration keeps coming to mind. And yeah. there is Elliot Brandt and the wonderful Alan Dershowitz at the 2017 APAC policy conference. Wexner's close ties to APAC on a different tone took a take on a different tone when one considers not only his close association with the Israeli intelligence connected Jeffrey Epstein, but also the fact that APAC itself has had long-standing and controversial ties to Israeli intel. For instance, APAC was at the center of an Israeli espionage scandal in the U.S. in the mid-1980s, as well as again in 2004, when high-ranking Pentagon analyst was caught 
passing highly classified information over to Israel's government via top officials at APEC. I believe his name is Jonathan Pollard, if I remember correctly. Mm. Despite extensive evidence, particularly in the latter case, APEC avoided itself avoided charges. As journalist Grant Smith at the time noted, the Department of Justice's pre chief prosecutor on the APEC espionage case, Paul McNulty, was suddenly and inexplicably promoted within the DOJ after he backed off on criminally indicting APAC as a corporation. The charges against specific APAC officials involved were also mysteriously dropped. Hmm. How about that? Yep. Right? In the years after the Wexner Heritage Program was launched, other similar efforts followed. In 1987, the Wexner Foundation announced it would be it would begin channeling the three to four million dollars in grants for the first year to the first year of a program that dedicated to the enhancement and improvement of professional leadership in the North American Jewish community. For the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, Wexner said, "Quote: This is uh, Wexner said in an advisory group drawn from among Jewish leader Jewish academicians and academicians academicians." and communal professionals recommended that a, attention be focused on three critical groups, rabbis, communal professionals, and educators. These efforts would result in the formal creation of the Wexner Graduate Fellowship in 1988. This guy, he just keeps creating all kinds of orgs. Chairmanship of the Wexner Fellowship Committee was given to Professor Henry Rosofsky. And again, we're going to get into the next half of it and where all of this goes next week but uh gear is saying it's not infiltration if everyone is in the club it's a gang well that's another way to look at it but it's not necessarily they were hand-picked selected groomed and usually brought into it well before they had any idea what they were getting involved with i which one in the which one does mel brooks play in our movie adaptation is the question oh boy you know yeah the bong father sequel yes um yes <laughs> yeah so jerry plays jeffrey is that what happens goodness um uh, uh, uh. no oh, oh, oh yeah yeah you I can mean, gray his hair I out like it, i feel like it writes him. itself it kind of does mm -hmm. this is the queen yep. This is the queen. We revere, we love we Whitney. Ju Julia Louis, Julie Louis Dreyfus to be Julesane. No? No. Whitney Webb, um, again, has been a professional writer, researcher, and journalist since 2016. She's written for several websites. She was a staff writer at Mid Press News, investigative, senior investigative reporter there. She currently writes for the Last American Vagabond, and her website is Unlimited Hangout. She also is on Rockfin, uh, on the Unlimited Hangout channel. Uh, if you are a premium member, you do get access to her podcast one week early, and she's just a badass and an absolute encyclopedia. Love that woman to pieces, um, and have she actually has answered a DM of mine once or twice here or there. So I just feel honored that she even acknowledged that I'm out there because I know there's tons of people that are coming at her for interviews and questions and everything and protect this woman at all costs is all i'm saying so that was yeah 
we're 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 forty five in. Yeah, that's what I figured. We're 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 pretty far in. I still got three stories to go, but they're shorter stories. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I will bet there was a lot of activity in the chat on that one. Yeah, not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, Whitney's just incredible. Um, this book is going to go so deep. I think she said it's almost eight hundred pages. Um. Mm. Order it at Amazon. Um, we'll have links to to order it. Uh, Fanto, our editor, also just clipped up. Whitney was on AM Wake Up this week. She did an hour and a half with Steve and Pasta, and Pasta put up a couple clips on on his Twitter today at Yo Pasta Y O Pasta on Twitter. Um, we also have some clips from the stream that we're going to be putting up. Um, just. I'm going to go through them, see exactly where they belong. And we're going to talk to Steve about where we're going to put them. Um, Steve Post and figure out, we're going to put them on our channel, on their channel, how we're going to do that. Give them credit. That's that's awesome, though. Again, shout out to, to Fanto for pulling that off. And shout out to those guys for having Whitney on. She was supposed to do an hour on, it was Thursday morning or Friday morning. She ended up doing an hour and a half. And it was lightning fast. It's worth subscribing to AM Wake Up on Rockfin alone just for that hour and a half. And it's free. Um, AM Wake Up is a free channel. Rockfin.com slash AM Wake Up. Scuba Steve actually from AM Wake Up and Slow News Day, who was on today at 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern. He was on Reefer After Dark Saturday night with, with our boy Reef and me. Uh, Yeti, Yeti joined yeah, us for the first time. half. That was, a, that was a real good time. That was I, I enjoyed myself uh, with, with Steve. Um, he's... He's an acquired Surprise taste. Pasta. Oh yeah, yeah. We had we had pasta pop yeah. in at the last minute. Take take a couple rips and definitely check out that stream. Yep. It was it, it was a fun couple hours and cringe and interesting conversation about um, Steve being the bad kid, in, the bad seed in Indiana growing up, and uh, being like the the ten right. eleven year old kid that's smoking behind behind the school that everyone warned their kids warned their mothers and their kids about, you know. And that's not surprising because mm -hmm. we love Steve and that's not surprising. So uh, we have one. Let's get to some more stories. Okay. Impo this is our friend. Okay. RJ Escal. Uh, RJ Escal is awesome, by the way. He has a YouTube program called The Zero Hour. Definitely follow him. It's Richard Escal, uh, I believe, on Twitter. Published an article in Common Dreams this week, Impossible Politics, Cracker Barrel, and the Future of the Left. And I really thought it, it was prescient. Instead of mocking the Cracker Barrel crowd, the left should be organizing them against the common threat faced by all working people, the concentrated power of corporations and political elites. And I think this is something that we've all talked about and focused on. All right. And what's happening here, and we're going to get into this here, and I... I I haven't been paying attention to this because I'm not a normie, and uh, but as many people have heard by now, an online controversy erupted when the aptly named Cracker Barrel restaurant chain uh, added a meatless sausage option to its breakfast menu, a document whose otherwise unhealthy options have arguably mass-produced more arterial cholesterol than any, indust than any other industrial gourmandizing operation on earth. He is a wordsmith. George Carlin would have been so proud, seriously. Good job, Richard. Mm-hmm. All right. Some people have argued that this story doesn't deserve all the attention it's received. I'm not so sure. In fact, I think it hints at a way forward for the American left that may be slathering a lot 
of portent into what is, after all, just a few thousand people arguing online about breakfast meat, but hear me out. Cracker Barrel, for those who don't know, is a restaurant chain that specializes in reproducing an idealized aesthetic of the rural South, especially as it's been portrayed in films and television. Peaceful, friendly, hillbillyish, and white. Each restaurant offers a country store and a just folks serving style. If you've ever seen the old country show, The Walton, the TV show, The Waltons, you'll know what I'm talking about. Cracker Barrel announced its mm -hmm. new menu option in a Facebook post that read, Discover New Meat Frontiers. Experience the out-of-this-world flavor of impossible sausage made from plants next time you build your own breakfast. This triggered, that triggered a series of outraged posts from right-wing customers with media coverage that highlighted posts like, Cracker Barrel's gone woke! Cracker Barrel gone woke! And, oh my god and this not is not the cracker barrel this is not the cracker barrel that i grew up with Ugh. Ugh. what but are we gonna do the right-wing commenters were soon swamped by liberals mocking their outrage it's not yeah exactly it's not like you're being forced to have a baby oh gee. <laughs> yeah right uh, you know it's really bad <laughs> when when you can't even be pro-choice when it comes to food said another one the right wing had its own rejoinders. Yeah. I'm just over here laughing at the fact that the meatless sausage is next to eggs, wrote one presumably conservative comment commenter, which is actually kind of a good point. <laughs> yeah. I the mean, most, yeah. eggs are okay. Right, but if you're yeah. going if you're going to try to stop the okay, anyway. The most insightful comment, yep. however, wasn't a jibe, it was this one. Everyone knows this isn't about sausage, right? It's about the fear that their comfortable, traditional world is being left behind. Give them a break. They're just scared. The compassion Look, is... They want their mouth full of meat, and they can't take it anymore. Like... Okay, I'm definitely no? clipping that audio. 100%. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh... The compassion's called for. The world is, in fact, being left behind. Rural America, like most working-class America, is in desperate, in desperate straits. It's been decimated by opioid addiction and deaths, environmental de devastation, and the permanent losses of good jobs. The so-called deaths of despair from alcoholism, overdose, and suicide have torn through white populations there, while rural communities of color have disproportionately suffered from pollution of the air and water. Their jobs have been outsourced, and their communities have been depopulated, and big agriculture has destroyed the family farm. The liberals mocking them online mm -hmm. are, in the aggregate, much wealthier than they are. True, in many ways, their world is never really real in the first place. Uh, it was a myth constructed in Hollywood and on the campaign trail to keep them pacified. That's the world that Krakenbauer represents. The intrusion of something strange, even something as benign and environmentally necessary as plant-based food, stands for something else. A world where life-altering decisions are made for them, not by them. Hence the rage against woke corporations. Some of the angry people may be racist, but this is an inchoate rage born of powerlessness, not of race racism. Okay, it's a powerless. Okay, here we go. This is Jesse. This is the anthem. Okay, we played powerless before the mm -hmm. show. If this was primarily about race, they wouldn't be calling Cracker Barrel woke for introducing plants to the breakfast menu. Woke to them means elite, powerful, wealthy. We think we know better than you, and we can force you to do things our way. A lot mm -hmm. of people, yep, 
A lot of people whose lives have been ruined by corporations and elites don't even know what wokeism is. They just know that if politicians and corporations are selling it, they don't want it. That, ra that rages why Republicans like Senators Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are blasting woke corporations and woke elites for what Hawley calls a toxic blend of offshoring and woke politics, selling out American war workers even as they attack American values. It's very much us versus them. Red versus blue again. While what? They run away with the green. Mm -hmm. They're all millionaires, by the way, guys. The truth is rural people should be scared of woke corporations, not because they're woke, but because they're corporations. That's where the left yeah. comes in, or at least should. Instead of mocking the Cracker Barrel crowd, the left should be organizing them against the common threat faced by all working people, the concentrated power of corporations and political elites. Instead, too many liberals and Democrats are relying on corporations to be the engines of their social agenda. As long as corporations dominate the economic landscape, corporate action will be useful. Impossible Foods, which makes the Impossible Burger and Impossible Sausage, is funded to the tune of $75 million from, of course, Bill Gates and Venture Capital. But we desperately need to reduce meat consumption to save the planet, which means that its product is useful and important. But corporate activism can never be a substitute for political activism or raising collective awareness. Corporations will always place profits above all other considerations. To depend on them in the end is to serve their interests. It's clear that the current strategy for reaching rural and other working class people dominated by the center left has failed. A recent New York Times Siena College poll found that, as the Times' Nate Cohn put it, for the first time in a Siena Times national poll, Democrats' share of support from white college graduates was higher than non-white voters, than for non-white voters, a remarkable sign of the shift in political energy in the Democratic Party in the coalition. Again, it has shifted educated white. Nor is this shift a whites-only phenomenon. <laughs> Inflation and the economy are dragging Democrats down among working-class voters, perhaps notably among Hispanic Americans. With his seemingly unfailing, un, unfailing capacity for error, <laughs> James Carville, the raging Cajun, proclaimed that wokeness is a problem and we all know it. But the problem with woke... How dare you insult Cajuns that way? Yeah. Well, um, that's what I he know. calls himself. That's what he calls himself. I yeah. know. And the, he is an and, insult. And he wears LSU colors and thinks that he speaks for anybody in the South. My God. Oh, On MSNBC. God. But the problem with quote-unquote woke corporations isn't the woke part. It's the corporate part. Yes, there's a resistance yeah. to, to change in some cultural circles, not just among evangelical whites, but among Catholic working-class Hispanics and many working-class blacks. But that may also show up as discomfort when, with rhetoric around certain minority of groups, but contra, Car contra Carville, that's no reason to abandon these groups. In fact, it would be immoral to do so. The center left must give way to the real left, which can reach these groups by explaining how corporation and elites truly exploit them. The problem is the center left is actually benefiting from those exploitations. The cultural yeah. resistance to change regarding LGBTQ issues, for example, will fade when people know that, that the threats to their way of life are being addressed. 
they don't necessarily care about that stuff if their material concerns are being met. Across the political spectrum, people think this political system doesn't work for them because it doesn't. Real progress can only be made when we stop thinking that any human beings are, are unreachable and that a better world for all of us is impossible. Ha 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 ha. Nice play on words there, RJ. Dude, he's good. <clears throat> he's good. Like you. You. Mona, You're good, Mona's everyone. In the chat. Mona, the queen. Mona had a birthday this week. Everybody wish Mona happy birthday. Love you, Mona. Happy birthday, Mona. Mona's the best. Um, Nobody but, would be on yeah, this I show mean, right now if it weren't for Mona a long time ago. I mean, I think we've said all that for a long time, you know? Yeah, I I, I don't... It is interesting that the weird... It's, it's like when they get mad at Starbucks cups. It's and, like, yes, what, it's... This is frivolous. Smashing their Keurigs, 100%. Know? Yep. Yeah, like, okay... Um, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, who else so, we got here? Yes, calling someone a Democrat is definitely an insult in itself, for sure. Uh, these days, um, RJ does have Max Blumenthal on regularly. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Mary Ellen. Good night, Ned. Yes, Aaron. <laughs> from from the uh, yeah. three amigos. Um, Zena is genuine wokeness the liberal effort to encourage people, including the rural community, to have empathy. Um, I didn't, I didn't it's, know my, like, you know, uh, puberty crush was going to be in the chat. Um, oh yeah. You know. Okay. Well, I mean, that's you cool. didn't watch Xena? No, no, it's not with an X, it's with a Z, but that's, but that's, uh, it's still a badass warrior princess either way. But yes, <laughs> yes. Wokeness, True. you know, I, I would, I would define again, everybody has their own definition, but, but to me, wokeness is is a, a cultural understanding and empathy of everyone around you. And the fact that you, that not everyone learned the same way that you did. Not everyone had the same opportunities and education that you did. Not everyone had the same background and, and experiences and exposure to certain things that you did. And a lot of times that's taken for granted by people who have not been exposed to that typically. Uh, that's that's where I would right. consider wokeism, but it has been turned into a dirty word again by multi-millionaire conservatives, which is freaking hilarious. Well, it was, and it was originally stolen from like the African American thing, like it's like a cultural thing with that, right? Of course, like historically, of course. Like, and then some fucking Karen stole that shit. Well, so cultural appropriation is always right. All right. Yeah. So, next one. Now we're going to get to some some more uplifting stuff. Um, game and tech workers are unionizing, and this was from Labor Notes, and we covered a Labor Notes story a couple weeks ago that was really good. And Colin's been talking about that. That the uh, educator up in Brookline, Mass. So here's another one: video game and tech workers dropping the U word. Yeah, baby. Tender claws, workers and allies showing off the T-shirts they printed by hand with help from a stripper strike organizer, and we. Famously, or nice. supportive of the stripper strike in 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 no in northern yep. LA. Okay, so at noon on July seventeenth, Robin's coworkers and she at the video game studio Tenderclaw stepped away from their desks. Two of their work from home colleagues walked into the office unannounced. Their out of state colleagues joined virtually on a laptop. They passed out a letter and read it aloud together. Dear management, 
we are proud to announce that we are forming the Tender Clause Human Union. Two weeks later, we obtained voluntary recognition, making Tender Clause the fourth video game studio with a certified union in North America. Our company is small, which is with a unit of just 11 workers, but our victory joins a nationwide wave of, of organizing in games and tech. Before 2020, there were virtually no unionized workers in these two industries. Today, there are more than 3,000 of us in the CWA alone. Case in, case in point, on the very day we delivered our petition, quality assurance workers at Blizzard Albany launched their own union drive. This small unit would create a second union toehold in the gaming in gaming giant Activision Blizzard, known for titles like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. Trouble in Paradise. Yep. So, which they've had, which they've had, to, which we we know. Uh, designer Dave worked at Blizzard. Um, correct. And friend he of the talked network, about friend the, of the, show. the terrible. Uh, the terrible treatment of staff there and the harassment and they had a whole thing recently, you know, um, had to fire a ton of people. Um, <clears throat> so, and then there was the, the like ritualistic firings where they cut like half the staff, like, yep. One go. Yeah. Well, you usually know, again, when like they, when, Blizzard when they, fin a... when they finish a game, that's typically what they do when they finish producing a game. Yeah. But this was, this was for like yes for a game no this was for blizzard mm -hmm. like this was like a, a whole game company that has like multiple games that are continually worked on right and then they just fired a ton of people mm. like you know it, and technically activision owns blizzard so you're you're getting this weird like double corporate structure but blizzard's terrible you know to staff in general Right. Um, well documented. So there. So she explains. So Robin explains. I think it's a she, but I I can't even say. Robin explains. <laughs> they uh, game workers make our living building video games. We create two D and three D art, compose audio, run quality assurance tests, code game functionality, write character dialogue, design game mechanics, perform customer service, manage communities of game of game players. Through our labor, our industry has become a financial giant forecasted to generate $200 billion just this year. All right. And that doesn't even count like yeah. the professional gaming industry. All right. <laughs> Workers in high tech jobs are often stereotyped as ping pong playing elite, but the reality is more complex. Some in our industry do make six figures, but many are paid well below the cost of living and in the country's most expensive cities. Okay. And most of the QA and customer service workers barely clear minimum wage. From Google to Activision yeah. Blizzard, our workplaces are divided between full-time employees and an underclass of temps, vendors, and contractors. Work-life balance is notoriously poor for both groups due to crunch, long stretches of crunch. overtime in the months or years before the launch of new software. And harassment and discrimination run rampant in workplaces traditionally dominated by straight white men. We yep. unionize Tender Clause as a wall-to-wall -wall unit to reduce crunch, bargain for sustainable career development, and diversify our hiring process. Tender Clause was founded with the intention of being a progressive workplace, and management has made many efforts to act fairly, but we aren't immune from the dynamics of the industry. The vision of a better workplace can only be fulfilled when workers ourselves have a direct say through our union in the decisions that affect us. The problems in games and tech aren't new. Workers have been organizing informally for decades using salary spreadsheets, class action lawsuits, whisper networks, press exposés, 
and more recently, walkouts. Some of these standalone actions have yielded moderate wins, and over time they develop consciousness uh, in the power of collective action over across our industries. When you work in a 0% unionized industry, it can be tempting to remain in this realm of informal organizing. A one-off action has a clean start and end and feels less risky than organizing a union. It's easier to get coworkers to commit to do something only once, and you can get away with without forming a proper leadership structure. I'm going to stop right there because Colin is probably screaming at his at his computer right now. Yes! Because this is the same thing that we've yeah. been talking about with the online events and the online conferences. Where is it all going towards? What are we building towards? What's the goal? What's the ask? What's the big win? Right. But, what are your demands? But this cuts like, both ways. Yeah. Standalone actions are easier because they don't fundamentally challenge the balance of power between workers and management. It's hard to hold on to the wins. The moment things cool down and managers no longer feel watched, they can quietly retaliate against troublemakers and restore the status quo. Yeah. Fellow fellow organizers and Robin used to re refer to suggesting unionization as dropping the U word. They told themselves that if an informal action went really well, they might escalate to unionizing, but that perfect time just never seemed to come. Last fall, mm -hmm. after three years of her organizer of their organizing with volunteer groups, a friend gave them some tough love. If you're calling it the U word with me, how could you be ready to say it to a coworker? This was the kick in the butt that I needed. Over the following week, I reached out to coworkers who had participated in collective actions, and I ripped off the bandaid. How would you like to form a union? Within a week, we had a core group of organizers. A few months later, we formed an organizing committee. We made mistakes, we learned a lot, and had plenty of ups and downs. But by June, we had 100% support in our bargaining unit, and by July, we had won union recognition. Sometimes being bold and upfront makes all the difference. Nobody else is going to unionize our industries for us. The grassroots movement, a uh, grassroots organization, Game Workers Unite, emerged at an industry trade show in March 2018 in protest of a roundtable called Union Now, Pros, Cons, and Consequences of Unionization for Game Devs. The moderator, a former CEO and then head of a toothless game developer advocacy nonprofit, was clearly not neutral. And as more than 100 angry game workers flooded into, into the event, it became clear that she was the only one in the room concerned with the cons of unionizing. Hmm. Mm -hmm. After the conference, organizers founded Game Workers Unite chapters across the world and funneled our energy into organizing by running trainings, forming connections with established unions and building networks of agitated game workers. We sowed the seeds of future unionization. At, in 2020, the CWA connected with grassroots networks just li like Game Workers Unite and brought the support of a major union to the North American game and tech industries. They pooled resources and staff organizers under their campaign to organize digital employees, which is code. This effort bore its first fruit in December 2021, when workers at indie game studio Vodeo formed, uh, or Vodeo, I don't know, I, I don't know how that's pronounced. Formed I, I think North it's Vodeo. Vodeo. North America's first game yeah. workers' union. 
They were followed in 2022 by quality assurance workers at the Activision Blizzard subsidiary Raven Software, which you had just mentioned a little while ago. Outside yeah. of video games, the tech industry has had a similar arc. Grassroots Tech Workers Coalition emerged in 2014, advocating for collective action and unionization in much the same way as game workers unite would. Unions at Kickstarter and Glitch won recognition in 2020. And in 2021, workers at Google and other Alphabet subsidiaries formed a militant minority union affiliated with Code CWA. Recently, they surpassed the mark of 1,000 members. So game and tech workers are suffering, and that's reason enough to, to unionize, right? But there are also strategic benefits for the rest of the labor movement to organizing high-tech workplaces. Why? Because technologies overhaul the working world. Consider high-tech surveillance in warehouses, digitized offices and schools, the apps used to gigify many jobs. Google search, Amazon mm -hmm. Web Services, Twitter, used so pervasively that despite private ownership, they've begun to resemble, resemble civic infrastructure. The bosses who control the production of these technologies wield more power than most world nations. For workers, the result of all this tech has been to make us less powerful, more isolated, and more closely monitored. But that's not inevitable. Technology could be liberating if the decisions on how it's used weren't left to a small handful of millionaires and billionaires. Agreed. By unionizing tech, we can leverage our collective power to improve the world. Imagine if we refuse to use our skills to exploit gig workers, target kids with in-game purchases, or wage wars. The first step is for game and tech workers to reject the lie that we are not like other workers and join our siblings in the labor movement. Strippers and gamers. Okay, again, getting back to our friend uh, Chris Smalls, who was hanging out with them this past weekend. A surprising friendship is flowering mm -hmm. between the Southern California game workers and strip club, strip club dancers at on strike at Star Garden, another group that's not like other workers. Again, makes me think back to the, the Google commercial. Oh, I'm sorry, the Vince Vaughn movie, Silicon Valley. Right. Oh, no, uh, what, mm -hmm. what, is that what it was called? Um. The one no where they, they become, in, no, uh, the internship. Or the, there was some kind of, in, the, him and Owen Wilson become interns at Google. It's hilarious, but it's a walking commercial for Google. It's a hysterically funny movie. But mm. one of the premises is that they have like a a dancer, a stripper slash dancer, uh, teaching mm -hmm. dance class to the Googlers, and then they end up going, they all go to a strip club and, one of the guys sees her and he like falls around. Oh my God, that's my dance teacher. Organizers <laughs> with, with game workers of SoCal have helped produce stripper strike signs and buttons. And we frequently walk their picket lines. Organizers from stripper strike helped the tender clothes union run a t-shirt making party and supported game workers at Activision Blizzard when they walked off the job in protest of harassment and race and gender discrimination. Solidarity. The contexts are different. But the striking strippers and the workers at Activision Blizzard are fighting for the same vision. Safer, fairer workplaces. We have more in common than we think. And I was right. Robin is a she. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Awesome. Just great stuff. Um, how they did it. Um, overcoming the fear of um, 
the word union and the the u word as the, as they called it gamers and strippers are a perfect union 100% because because <laughs> gamers traditionally are like shut-ins but but they certainly lo love the pretty ladies and usually they don't get their attention cuz they they tend to go for the the jockey guys but if it's changing uh -huh. and it's flipping on its head god bless them god i'd love hearing that uh -huh. man it's just about 30 years too late for me but my 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 nephew and I wanted to showcase my kids. God there's bless you. Um, there's a um. Company called uh, their streamers called the Yogscast, and recently for the last like, I think week or so, they've done like back to back to back streams for indie game development studios, right? Um, less than five people per game worked on like all of them. Wow. And picked like a whole series of like a hundred or whatever. And like, you know, stuff like, and, and all these companies are like putting the games on sale and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, they do this like every year, the Yogs. So, um, Yogs cast? If you, if you Google it, yep, Y O G S C A S T, tiny teams is what they're, they're calling it. Um, but just a cool way to showcase the smallest stuff. I think they didn't count like freelancers, right? Which are like, like all those people you talk about, even on a normal game that are like, yeah, if you're, you're coming in to do the voice of a, you know, weird, you know, rat like, like creature, you know what I mean? Like, they're not going to keep you forever. Like, I, they're going to freelance work you. But anyway, I got one more story um, and and I then we get to some boats and it's another union story another worker story let me go back to slideshow and here we go and this one is written by the Amazon workers themselves for popular resistance and this was published on August 11th urgent appeal for unity and mass action against union busting we've been talking about this yep so Here's a group of our friends, the Amazon workers in LA. This is from Reuters. They put this out. And again, this was written by Amazon workers. And I love showcasing the workers themselves. And I love hearing the voice of the people that are actually in the field and in the warehouses and in the trucks driving and that are actually working for Amazon. This is who we need to be talking, talking to and hearing from. And we're going to be very soon. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. The national wave of organizing and militancy spearheaded by Starbucks workers and Amazon workers is the biggest upsurge in worker organizing since the 1930s and 40s. The organizing wave has spread to Trader Joe's, Chipotle, Apple, REI, and a growing list of chain stores and industries, like we just talked about. However, this uprising of workers, which holds the potential of not only saving the labor movement, but transforming it, is under life-threatening attack. We must unite in defense of these brave young workers that are the vanguard of this transformative worker struggle. We propose these dates for coordinated mass actions across the country. September 5th, Labor Day. Organize a presence at Labor Day marches or organize your own, i.e. Amazon and Starbucks workers are planning to march in New York City, both to Bezos' house and to Howard Schultz's apartment. On Thursday, September 8th, they're planning a national virtual planning meeting for the days of coordinated mass actions. So everybody can dial in and that'll be like a, well, it's probably not going to be Zoom because it's host, Zoom is hosted on Amazon web servers, but there will be a 
a webinar for people to dial into. On Thursday, September 29th, there's National Coffee Day, which is often promoted by Starbucks. They want to create a direct action for Coffee Day. And then on October 1st, which is the six-month anniversary of the Amazon Labor Union election victory and International Coffee Day. These are some of the milestones that they want to organize for. The national wave of organizing and militancy spearheaded again by Starbucks workers and Amazon workers. I got that one. Got that one. From their corporate boardrooms down to their worksite managers, Starbucks and Amazon are engaged in an outright war to crush the organizing wave. No surprise here. Puppies, what? Wait. No, I don't, have, I don't have kitties here. Squirrel. I thought somebody said puppies. I was going to say kitty, but I don't have Warren Kitty over here for some reason. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Starbucks is firing union organizers, closing stores, cutting workers' hours, and denying pro-union workers wage increases and benefits. Starbucks workers are fighting back. Starbucks Workers United is still winning union elections all over the country and flexing its muscles with walkouts and strikes. Woohoo! Shout out Starbucks United. Amazon is determined to overturn the historic April 1st Amazon labor union victory in New York City and crush the ALU. At the same time, new ALU chapters are forming around the country. The Amazon workers in North Carolina have formed Carolina Amazonians United for Solidarity and Empowerment, CAUSE, and are getting stronger every day. Amazon workers everywhere, including Amazonians United and the RWDSU in Alabama, are coming together in spite of their different approaches to organizing. However, in order for these groundbreaking battles to defeat union busting, immensely greater forces must join together and strengthen them. Howard Schultz and Jeff Bezos are this year's poster boys for union busting, but efforts to crush the workers' uprising are by no means limited to Starbucks and Amazon. Wall Street and the U.S. capitalist class are fully behind this war to destroy a new workers' movement before it spreads further. Our response to this threat must be equal to the danger. It's going to require a level of mass solidarity and mass mobilization in defense of workers on the front line greater than anything we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Unified organizing and widespread mass solidarity is absolutely central to the continuation of this historic transformation of the working class movement. At stake is nothing less than the long-awaited and necessary evolution of a more of, of the working class movement from its present weak state to a more radical, militant, inclusive, and class-wide movement that is led by rank-and-file workers, is not dominated by business unionism, is not dependent on or subservient to the Democratic Party, and views all struggles as workers' struggles, including the fight against racism, access to abortion, the anti-war struggle, a struggle to stop climate disaster, and the struggle for LTB, LGBTQ2S plus rights. That's a new one. I don't know what that 2S is, but mm -hmm. I know all the other ones. I don't either. Okay, I just heard echo. Would you just do different? Nothing. Okay. Also, is a vital part of the struggle against evictions and all community struggles. We talked about that recently. I've been helping somebody who's been struggling with eviction herself. Prioritizes, yep. prioritizes the most oppressed workers, including migrant workers, also who wants to be part of a militant global workers' movement and is strong enough to smash the threat of fascism. 
A growing section of the left is now engaged in varying levels of solidarity work with these critical worker struggles. But as of yet, the less commitment to this struggle is alarmingly insufficient. While some of the organized labor movement are taking the need for solidarity against union busing seriously, unfortunately, most of the top leadership of the labor movement remain unmoved by this threat and have focused on electoral politics and reliance on the Democratic Party. This is not good and it must change. Now's the time to intensify the pressure to compel that change. And there's a petition and a website that you can sign on to to get involved. Again, I'll drop that in the chat now. Link URL. All right, so everybody can sign up and join. I've already registered my email address, of course, there. And uh, solidarity with all these workers. Now, there is a little bit of an update to this story, which um, was sent to me tonight by a new friend. Um, let me just go grab that real quick. On Twitter, he tweeted it to me, and then I'll open up the article. But there was an article in World Socialist website published a couple days ago. Les Bones. What? Don't get distracted. No, uh, Les Bones. Okay. Don't get distracted. Hold on. I'm looking for the thing. You right can do now. it. I'm looking for it. I'm here. Right there. I got it. I got it. But I saw the other thing, and I'm like, whoa, what's that? But Okay. Uh -huh. okay. Uh, That's why I said don't get distracted. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. I'm just going to show you the headline here. Um, we're not going to go through the whole article, but real quick. This is a concern. Amazon labor union yep. suspends unionizing efforts in New York as Amazon continues its legal bid to overturn the election at JFK warehouse. This was published four days ago in world socialist website. Yep. <clears throat> Why? To focus on the lawsuit. even though the NLRB has already held hearings and they'll make a decision within weeks. So remains to be seen what's going on here. Uh, WSWS condemns Amazon challenge of the vote and demands that the democratic will of Amazon workers be respected. And again, I have mixed, mixed feelings about world socialist website. Uh, they've done some really good stuff. Also some stuff that I'm not crazy about, but, um, here they're talking about that they're yet yeah, not, they are not doing very great since August, since April 1st. And, you know, that they would support union, ALU announced that it would support unionization facilities in all these other locations, Albany and Campbellsville. And, Chris pledged to give two workers at two locations whatever they need and said they'd become formal chapters of the ALU. Um, and again, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens there also. And um, stay tuned here. But this mm -hmm. is this was a really upsetting development to, to read today when I heard about this. But yep. we're... Uh, we're continuing to track and follow the story. So that is the five news stories I had. 
about an hour and a half. This was good. Um, everybody like what we got? Um, hmm. Jimmy, yep. how are you? Good to see you. Anthony, everybody's here hanging out. It's great. 29 people watching live on YouTubes. How are we doing on the Rockfins? Got some people over there. Seven people live on the Rockfins. We're over on Rumble. We got some people. Uh, looks like just me. How, how am I the only person watching on Rumble? Come on. Come on, everybody. Rumble.com slash Indie News Network. I-N-D-I-E News Network. Everybody go give us a sub over there. Go check out Indie News Network on Rumble. That is another platform that does not censor. Well, they kind of don't censor. They're, you don't talk about Israel, I guess. They won't censor. But anyway. Um, but yeah, thank you to everybody who's been hanging out tonight. This was uh, a lot of fun to go through these stories. Uh, definitely to read the Whitney Webb stuff. And we will definitely cover the other half of her article that she published in Unlimited Hangout. Again, go, everybody go to Unlimited Hangout. Uh, after the stream, I will update the descriptions and the substack to have all the links to all the articles, the petition for Amazon workers. Um, and yeah, so that's that's what's happening here. How you doing, dude? If you didn't see Tuesday night, we did a stream for Warren. It, well, it was it was Jesse and I for American Tradition, and it was Warren Palooza. Go back and watch that. He played about 25 covers from all different genres. We laughed. We cried. It was, we raised over $100 for Warren. It was inspiring, and it was fantastic um, to hear. And we're going to probably be doing another one of those. That's what we're talking about, maybe for the Saturday night thing, or we're going to dedicate one of his streams every month to doing one of those. Um we're still trying to figure it all out, but love that dude. Um, and, and love you, Warren. Appreciate you. Glad you're uh, on your way back and starting to get yourself uh, uh, back into it. We're excited about that. And uh, Jimmy said she's going to fill in, take over for Warren's spot till he comes back. That's great. Love seeing that. Whatever we can do to support and, and get you going there on INN, that'll be great. Um, so I pretty much toast for tonight and... Yeah, we get we get a little bit early tonight. Uh, unfortunately, boats is a little shortened and audio tech issues. But yeah. wanted to thank everyone for being here. Uh, what do you have going on this week besides I in the news? You gonna do Reefer After Dark Friday? Uh, I should I should be doing one. Um, nice. I'll I'll reach out to some um, to some uh, people that I that I have in the in on the twitters. And and see what guests I can pull together. So, um, keep an eye on Twitter, and uh, I'll, I'll let people know when that's happening. Um, also, Camp Dada. I think that's it. Yeah, Camp Dada is going to be happening soon. Yeah. Support that. Lucy from Blue Moon Red Wine from INN, Bank Sisters, and a bunch of other organizers are putting together this fun event in the Hamptons to go camping and talk about some strategies and maybe cause a little. A little fun disruptions. Who knows what's going to happen out there? But um, they're just they're they're really just getting together to to camp and and to meet each other and to have solidarity and to take what we're doing online and bringing it to the offline and to the human beings uh, out there. So that's going to be fun. 
say to question everyone's motivations and say goodnight, everyone. And uh, Sarifi. Keep listening to what little birds have to tell you, everyone. Good night, fam. I think I liked it better being blind When I couldn't read between the lines And when I couldn't see the cracks in the structure That lay bare before me the whole time I think I liked it better back when I Suspended disbelief and swallowed pride I thought I knew the difference in the red from the blue But they both bleed us so dry both bleed us so dry My favorite songs don't hit the same way I get to the end of a four minute track And I'm only looking back thinking What did they actually say? So I try to If you like this podcast Please help our show grow by subscribing And giving us a five star review On your favorite podcasting platform For more content you can follow Independent Left News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IND Left News and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To get news updates twice a day to your inbox, subscribe via email on the independentleft.news website. Join our Jetstream 24-7 News and Opinion Discord at independentleft.gg with more than 50 channels, each dedicated to a different outlet, journalist, YouTuber, or political comedian. Thanks, everyone. Remember to check out independentleft.news in your browser and subscribe to our podcast for news updates.